Hey, welcome back, loyal and faithful listening audience to Noggin Notes. This is the only podcast, of which I am aware, that aims to educate and enrich your noggin by exploring matters of mental wellness and illness, psychological functioning, emotional well-being, and all sorts of other health-related topics as they pertain to your existence on this earth and being at peace within it. And sometimes we include attorneys. And today is one of those times, and I'm interviewing my friend Mike Morton today, and we discuss the the profession of of law and how uh, stress comes to be in the, the folks who work within the law and the legal profession and how they deal with it or don't deal with it, and then some some other uh, nuances uh, with regard to working within bureaucratic structures and that sort of thing, because uh, Mike is an attorney for the government, and that's a that's kind of a different animal in and of itself, but I think there's some practical application to the broader listening audience uh, insofar as you, you, you all, we all work within uh, different systems, and sometimes those systems can be a little bit frustrating, and they can wear on us, and so... We explore a little bit of that, and I think you'll probably enjoy it. This podcast, again, is brought to you by Zephyr Wellness, my company in Reno and Sparks in greater northern Nevada. You go to ZephyrWellness.org. We've revamped our website, and we've got all the content searchable now. Well, it it soon will be searchable anyway. Uh, I have to go in there and manually add uh, search tags, (laughs) and that's no small feat because we've got a couple hundred uh, items to to tag and and categorize, but uh, it's been cleaned up. And I want to give a plug to Mabel Media. It's a local uh, advertising outfit here in town. They they create logos and and websites and all sorts of printed materials as well. Graphic design. They're really really great. Mabel Media. M A B B L E Media. Uh, give them credit for what they do for us. We're also brought to you by Audible. And if you haven't checked out Audible, you really should. Uh, if you can get a free 30-day trial with Audible by going to audibletrial.com slash notes, And you can uh, sign up with that link, and it helps us out. It helps you out because you get to feed and enrich your noggin through Audible's unmatched inventory of audio content. Not just audiobooks, but also news and entertainment and all sorts of other stuff. Check out audibletrial.com slash notes. Get your free 30-day trial. And along with that free 30-day trial, you get one free audio book. And once you download that, even if you decide not to continue the, the subscription, you get to keep your book. So that's a pretty sweet deal. audibletrial.com slash notes. Without me rambling any longer, I will uh, start the podcast. And I hope you enjoy this interview with my friend Mike. You're listening to Noggin Notes. So this week on the podcast, we have a special treat, and uh, we happen to be recording this the day before Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving Eve, if you will, and I will. Uh, (laughs) So I'm thankful for my friend, Michael Morton, to uh, be joining us on the podcast. Mike's an attorney, and he works for the state of Nevada, and he's he's been doing this for a little while. You're originally from Connecticut, and you came to us in Nevada by way of Missouri. Um. So let's start by. I already said I'm thankful for having you here, but um, we should we should do an exercise on um, what for what we are thankful. So give me one thing for which you are thankful, and then I will reciprocate. Um, I'm thankful for you using prepositions in the right way. Yeah, you don't want to end a sentence with one. No, you don't. Um, I would say that I am thankful for my health. Um, it's not something that anyone should take for granted, and I certainly don't. Um, 
with certain family histories of things, I'm definitely happy to be healthy and, you know, living a life that I enjoy. I agree with that. And I think uh, in the spirit of giving thanks, I am thankful for running an agency like Zephyr Wellness that generates a paycheck for me, um, regardless of whether or not I'm actually doing anything for the agency. So I get to record this podcast with you right now, literally on the clock. And um, it's it's a real blessing to be able to do that. And I don't ever take that for granted. So um, that all being said, and starting this podcast off in the spirit of giving thanks, uh, we hope that you as the listening audience also uh, take a moment to reflect on that for which you are thankful and uh, maybe go approach those people to whom you need to give thanks and uh, thank them. But that all being said, introduce yourself a little bit beyond uh, my introduction of your your geographical history and how you arrived in Nevada. <laughs> sure. Uh, yeah, I was born and raised in Connecticut. Um, w- you know, went to college up in Boston and then decided to sort of leave the East Coast and explore the rest of the country. Sort of leave, like <laughs> entirely leave to the Midwest. <laughs> right, yes. I definitely packed up and left. Uh, spent three years in Missouri, uh, three and a half years uh, while I was in law school. Um, and then decided to do the same thing um, up and leave the Midwest and head out into the Sierra Nevadas. And I've been in the state of Nevada for a little over five years and have been uh, an attorney for the state for that time. You love it here. I see your Instagram posts of you hiking all the time and exploring different various uh, iterations of the backcountry. Yeah, I love the state of Nevada. I've been to all 17 counties in the five years that I've been here. Um, I love driving all over the state. For those of you who aren't from Nevada, um, other than the population centers of Las Vegas and Reno, it's pretty desolate. Um, But I love that. I love driving the back roads, the dirt roads, where your cell phone doesn't work, um, and just enjoying what the state has to offer. We are actually international here with Noggin Notes, and truly international. I've, I've interviewed people from uh, the United Kingdom, India, Cambodia, South Africa, uh, various parts of the United States. And I think it is illustrative to describe Nevada because people can look at it on a map. And uh, what's what's lost, I think, is that we are a very much a desert state, um, it, but it's a very beautiful desert um, checkered with mountains across the entire geography. And it is desolate, but it's but it's gorgeous. And um, because we're a desert, it's um, it provides a very unique um, landscape. So we um, we have a lot of really cool tucked away places like hot springs where geothermal energy is generated. But then also you can just sit in these very natural hot springs in the middle of the desert and enjoy yourself, or hike a mountain up to ten, eleven, twelve thousand feet and see forever and um, you can also find forests and all sorts of wildlife and it's it's a beautiful state I love my state and I've been here my whole life was born and raised but what really embarrasses me is that you've been to 17 counties and I've been to 16 and I've never I've never set foot in Lincoln County if you can believe that and so I think I need to rectify that sooner than later (laughs) because it's uh it's humiliating to have somebody who's lived here for um what is it one uh, eighth of my life <laughs> to already have touched all the all the counties in Nevada, uh, but I appreciate your your um, your feedback on that and, and your reflection because it's 
it is cool. If you if you've never been to Nevada, please please come. We'd love to have you here. Uh, we do border California, and part of California is made up of forests, and half of Lake Tahoe is in California, and the other half's in Nevada. And uh, Lake Tahoe is absolutely one of the gems of all of the natural wonderment of of the earth. So if you've never been to Nevada, please come visit Reno. We are more than casinos and neon and slot machines and um, and strip clubs and and marijuana dispensaries. But um, thank, thanks for the intro. Um, I, I'm having you on because as an attorney who works for the state, you encounter a lot of different dynamics in your work environment. But chiefly, there's there's a mental health component here with uh, the legal profession as a whole, where you guys struggle differently. I think than, than a lot of, of professions and, you know, I've rapped about this a couple of times and I don't want to hog your spotlight. That's why I have you on. So I want you to expound upon the, the, the struggles mentally that your profession deals with in all the various capacities, uh, that, that it does. Sure. I think my personal journey as an attorney is a bit unique. So I will first talk about the legal profession as a whole. Um, I'm sure plenty of the people listening to this have hired an attorney um, for one reason or another, whether it's something totally benign like drafting a will or reviewing a sale contract for a house uh, or maybe something much more serious, hiring a, a defense attorney because you've been indicted for a crime or you've been arrested or there is some sort of uh, personal injury dispute those men and women that are hired as attorneys literally hold their clients' well-being and their future in their hands. Um, and it doesn't, you know, a lot of people say that attorneys, you know, make a ton of money and are rolling in it. Um, I have friends. I've seen where you live and I've seen what you drive. It's not true. <laughs> I'll take that as a compliment. Um, but I have former classmates and colleagues that have been, for example, you know, a defense attorney or on the other side, a prosecutor, and they have lost their case. And it doesn't matter how much money they've made losing that case. I can guarantee that the vast majority of attorneys would rather return the money and have a better outcome for their client, whether they are, whether their client is the people and they're a prosecutor and they just had someone get off a murder charge when they know that that person murdered someone and that attorney now has to go face that person's family. Or on the flip side, they couldn't get an innocent person off of, you know, couldn't acquit them of that charge and they're going to watch that person go to prison and then have to face that person's family. Um, holding, holding someone's life in your hands, figuratively, because we're not medical professionals, but... Um, it's something that no amount of money can alleviate. I I think you touch upon a, a really important subject that regardless of the profession, we all have professional standards and uh, philosophies and, and certainly ethics to uphold that drive the why to the what that we do. And it sounds like in, in your profession – you you care very deeply, or mo most of you, I would I would assume, just like most people in my profession, care very deeply about what they do, and when they don't follow through or see an adequate result, it's it's very it's very disheartening. And 
and in my profession, that leads to all sorts of stresses when clients don't progress or they they fail to to come to sobriety or or uh, families break up or whatever it may be. It, it we carry a heavy burden because we attach to these people. Um, we're, we're not just automatons del- dispensing feedback. And you guys are in the same boat where you're giving counsel and advice and direction and representation. And, and when things don't work out in your, your client's favor, you've already, you've already formed a bond with this person and that impacts you. Right. And, and that's, that's what we're, we're struggling with. Uh, you, me, our, our, our folks. So, um, what are the coping skills like <laughs> popular in your profession? I, I know a little bit about this cause I've given, uh, trainings on it, but share, share the listening audience. What, what, attorneys do well <clears throat> i think that attorneys are most well known for their very poor ways of coping with this stress um there's been a lot of academic research done on how attorneys do handle the stresses of their job and d- different studies lead to fairly different results, but attorneys are always, you know, probably in the top five of the list of professions that um, abuse drugs and alcohol. Um, Unfortunately, the suicide rate in the legal profession is extremely high and higher than the the national average. Um, So I think I think that the way the ways that I mean I don't think I know I I know the ways that attorneys have historically coped with the stresses of handling other people's very serious affairs uh, have led to the you know the detriment of the industry. And this isn't just about losing cases. Uh, you know, we, we all I think in, in my um, fledgling understanding of your profession, you know, we we have this idea that people go and do the the. Um, few good men grandstanding in front of the judge, thundering away on the uh, you know, fist on the table kind of thing. And, and that happens very, very rarely. And in fact, dry, trial attorneys in and of themselves are pretty sparse. Most of what you guys do is done behind the scenes. And so it's not just about the wins and the losses. It's more about the simple carrying of the burden of what you're trying to accomplish. Is that, is that fair to say? It is, you know, you know, the legal profession has changed drastically over the past couple of decades where um, it's not the, you know, the televised courtroom drama. Um, there, there are no, you know, O.J. Simpson cases anymore. Those don't happen. Um, and the downside to that is now attorneys feel that if they let a case where every now, not just they will know about someone's personal life and what they're going through and what the attorney is trying to fix. If you let it go to a trial, everyone's going to know. And so it is. it has become an attorney's job to protect their clients, not just from the alleged wrong that has happened that has led to the client hiring them, but to protect them from the media and the, you know, thoughts and opinions of the general public, which nowadays would be blasted all over social media and the person's life would be changed forever because of an attorney's ethical duties. He or she feels that they have to protect their client from all of that. So we're really talking about occupational stress 
and and yours is unique like like mine is unique in the fact that um what we do is uh presumed to be confidential and whereas somebody who maybe you know we'll just take random widget maker you know somebody making widgets in a factory for whatever product goes into there's an occupational stress there too because there's an expectation of the job so while yours has to do with confidentiality, mine has to do with confidentiality, yours has to do with keeping people out of the public limelight, and hopefully the, the case doesn't go to that extent. Mine sometimes is the, in the same realm. Widget maker, we, it's easy for us to cast that off and say, well, you're not a professional, and widget making is easy. And I'd love to, we, we often use that as a pejorative, even though we're like, I just, I'd love to go and, you know, make widgets all day and not have to deal with this stress. Well, the, the guy making widgets in the factory deals with the stress too. There's, there's productivity standards to be met or goals. Uh, there's always a boss demanding, you know, higher perfectionism, whatnot. Um, how, do you guys have anything in your profession specifically that deals with self care and how you handle that so that you don't go diving into a bottle, whether it be booze or drugs? Um, and, and then how does that apply specifically to your life? If you wouldn't mind giving some examples on, on how you deal with your stress. I know we mentioned hiking earlier, but that's that's one way. What are some other ways? And what does the profession teach? Sure. The 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 profession has gotten much better over the past five or so years um, into helping their members help themselves. Um, every state every state's bar association now and the bar association is the professional association that every lawyer in a certain state must join. Each bar association has a confidential assistant program where a lawyer can call a confidential hotline, speak to either um, a medical professional, a mental health professional, or a legal professional, and get the help they need, whether that is um, help with substance abuse or addictions, um, if they are thinking of hurting themselves, the person on the other end of the hotline has the resources available for that attorney. Um, and because attorneys are so familiar with keeping things confidential, those calls are confidential, and they're confidential even from the bar association itself. So if I go home today and call Nevada's lawyer assistance program hotline, uh, the bar association, which is the one that holds my license, will never know that I called. And, and even though they fund it, right? As I, th- I think I saw flyers for that in the bar association office. I was there for one thing one time ago. It seemed like a really cool idea. But I believe the bar association funds it, right? Yeah, the bar association is funded by all of its members' annual dues. Um, and so the bar association has taken a portion of those and has created this program every bar association in every state or jurisdiction in the United States has done the same thing, including some of the voluntary national organizations. So the American Bar Association has a lawyer's assistance program. Um, I know that the, um, some of the local jurisdiction, the local bar associations in Nevada, um, which are voluntary, have lawyer assistance programs because it has become, and I, I don't like using this word too often, but I'll use it here. It really has become an epidemic in the profession um, that the profession is working so hard for the clients that it serves that it is hurting itself. Well, that's super cool that they're uh, funding something that helps so many people. Um, 
my question, I guess, is that because this is triggering a lot of things, or as I uh, used the phrase earlier in supervision today, it's uh, t- tickling my neurons. <laughs> that uh, when I when I do my work with Walk the Talk America, we've got uh, gun owners who are afraid to pick up the phone and receive assistance because they don't want their uh, stuff dumped into some central repository to be used against them later. You guys, I, I've, I've encountered this repeatedly now. Your profession has the same fear because you don't want your bar associate, your state bar that licenses you to know that you're struggling because there's a potential ethical conflict if you're, quote-unquote, incapacitated to, to, to perform your legal function as an attorney. Um, you don't you don't want to reach out for help, and this all has to do with mental health stigma, right? If you if you if you are uh, struggling with something, then you're somehow deemed unfit to care for your clients, and uh, and then it's irrecoverable. And these are these are all myths, and they're not true, but but they're uh, true enough for the people who are dealing with them to avoid seeking help, and then the the problem gets bigger, and sometimes to the point of suicide or you know uh, really major self harm. So how does the Bar Association guarantee the confidentiality? And then beyond that, how do they communicate the message to the actual licensees that it's, it's okay to seek help? To my knowledge, the, every Bar Association um, does a great job in ensuring confidentiality. I know that the Nevada Lawyer Assistance Program... Um, is, for lack of a better term, outsourced. So the, the hotline and the funding comes from the, the state bar, but the people answering the phones are not state bar association employees. Um, there are contracts in place between the service provider and the, the bar association that the bar association will never get any of that information um, to the point where even if you're even if an attorney's problem does reach the public eye where their substance abuse or whatever type of ailment or sickness that they have is affecting their client in a certain way and their client files a complaint with the Bar Association, the Bar Association cannot go to the assistance program service provider and say, hey, can I? are there any files on... Um, you know, Attorney Joe Smith, we just received a complaint about him from a client and we want to see what information we might have on him. And that can't happen. So I think I heard you say earlier that the, the suicide rate is abnormally high in your profession uh, compared to the national level. What's what's the barrier to care then? If all these protections are in place, nobody's going to get judged. Uh, it's all confidential. You can seek the help that you need. What's 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 the holdup? Is it is it ego? Is it unwillingness to seek help? Is it fear? What, what is it? I think it's a combination of those things. Uh, the legal profession historically and you know, every accredited law school to a degree still does this, um, teaches their students, the future lawyers, that uh, weakness should be avoided at all costs and saying that you need help is a form of weakness. And weakness being judged as bad. Correct. So what I teach is that weakness is necessary and it's not bad. Weakness is the inability to control certain things like neurological functioning, which is emotion. When the environment throws a stimulus at you, 
you don't have any control of that. You are inherently weak in that moment because you can't control it. Your brain just is going to tell you what to do. Um, so our cultural narrative has to change. We have to we have to moderate or modify what what weak means. Right, because the way that lawyers are taught in school is that you know when you're in front of a judge or in front of a jury, um, you have to convince them that you are right, and you do that by being loud and authoritative and you know confident and right and yeah. you know the a few good men scene of you know banging the desk and yelling mm-hmm. at you know yelling at the witness and anything else is seen as being weak and weak being undesirable and if you're undesirable then no one wants to hire you and then you'd be out of a career so there's this there's this pretend uh this 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 patina of uh uh assertion i guess that that belies a uh, a real need for help and and it's and there's an an authenticity that's going on in, in the i guess in the profession whereby the the face that you have to present is one of full-blown competence and um no holes in the in the ship or whatever um and then when a when you recognize a hole in the ship or you recognize that you, you may not have everything together you're not allowed to acknowledge it is that, is that what I'm hearing? It is, and I think that if anyone's been listening to your podcast for any length of time, they'll be familiar with your explanation of emotions. And in general, even today, emotions are bad in the legal profession. Except for anger. Right. Anger means strength. Because we get to choose it, and it's a proxy emotion for some of the more vulnerable stuff. So even that is artificial in, in many contexts. Anger, by the way, if you're new to listening to the podcast, thank you for the uh, shout-out, by the way, Mike, um, <laughs> and the endorsement. Uh, anger is used to motivate, usually to make change. Most of our emotions are motivators to do something, avoid or engage or pursue or whatever. Anger motivates to make change. So if you're actually angry, you want to you want to double down and try harder, study you know more or whatever. It's not to avoid an escape because you can't avoid an escape, sadness or, or fear or shame or guilt. Uh, all you can do is face them and deal with them. So if, if you're in the legal profession or if you're even in the counseling profession and you're perceived as um, less than uh, pristine, it can be perceived as a, um, incompetence. And, and, and that's not true. It's, it's just not true. So if you're, if you're weak because your marriage is failing or your kids are acting up in school or you, you, you start drinking a little more than you probably should um, and you're aware of this, it's okay to admit it. And one of the things Walk the Talk America is doing is putting flyers out that says mental health, it's okay to talk about it, right? So it's okay to admit that you're, you're struggling because we don't want you struggling in perpetuity and we definitely don't want struggling to struggle to the point where you, you know, execute self-death because that doesn't help anybody. So uh, this, this facade of strength um, masqueraded by you know, anger or whatever it is needs to change. How do we change it? How do we make it okay for people to, to be not okay? I think it starts with allowing an attorney to get and be emotional about his or her client. Um, yeah, I thought you guys did that. I thought you got passionate about your, your zealous representation. That's what I hear, right? Sure. And the, the ethical code, every state's ethical code requires zealous representation of your client. But that just means being loud and angry and forceful. I... 
I don't I don't work in the part of my profession where I'm in court every day, but I during law school and in in my professional life I have been in enough courtrooms to know that if an attorney got choked up during an opening or a closing argument or during uh, the interrogation of a witness, even to the jury who is, you know, 12 lay people, that would be seen as weakness. By whom? The professor who's not in the courtroom? By the jury itself, because that's what the, the legal profession has been put on this pedestal through its its own self-promotion and decades and decades of, you know, TV shows and movies that judges and juries and everyone else in the general public has been given this false perception about what the legal profession is supposed to be and what an attorney is supposed to do. So you're not even allowed to be human. It's frowned upon. So... That's that, Okay, so it makes sense to me in my clinical mind, but it's also strange to me that that wouldn't resonate with a uh, jury box. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm told in my profession we should be strong for our clients. It's okay to identify and align with them in their times of sadness or whatever. It's okay to cry and validate that stuff. But you don't want to lose yourself, right? So yeah, I don't want to be carrying my clients' burdens. I don't want to be crying for them. Uh, I can cry with them, um, but but ultimately we want to be the strength that they seek in their healing. Why can't an attorney, therefore, be so impassioned as to leak a tear to communicate that passion, not in a moment of um, you know uh, lack of control, but a, but a purposeful, intentional identification with the, this this struggle that your client is going through in the in the courtroom. I think that that has been frowned upon because, you know, lawyers and lawyers uphold the law and their arguments are supposed to be based on mm. fact okay. and law and facts and laws are emotionless. Right. And, okay. you, you know, the um, the great symbol of at least the American justice system is you know, blind justice. It's the, the, right. the female statue who's holding a set of scales and has a blindfold on that, you know, she doesn't care what a person looked like or what they have gone through. It's based on fact and law and fact and law are not supposed to cry or smile or be happy or sad it's or angry. <laughs> I, sure. I mean, hey, if I'm, if I'm talking to a law professor and they're like advocating anger as a, as a proxy for, passion uh then you you shouldn't be doing that either it should be very sterilized it's true but anger is and i and i agree with that but anger while not necessarily you know an emotion that you want to feel it's something that nearly every person identifies with mm -hmm. so it's familiar to the 12 people sitting in the jury box or the you know the members of a legislative committee that are going to be voting on something anger is one of the most familiar and recognizable states i agree and yet i'll i want to i want to explore this a little more and and push you to to respond because you're my guest and you're representing the entire legal profession no pressure um 
if if facts and law are supposed to be devoid of emotion and we're supposed to analyze these things in a vacuum and it's supposed to be very sterile, then why the struggle with attorneys who are supposed to be dispassionate about this stuff and why are they getting emotionally enmeshed with their uh, cases? Because they're human and... It's human nature to feel for another person who you've formed this very close relationship. And if you are a good attorney, you have formed very close relationships with your clients. Um, but if you can't express those, <clears throat> if you can't. It's good radio if you clear your throat right in the <laughs> microphone. No, it's okay. <clears throat> it's a. Um, very human expression, by the yes. way. Yes. If you're not able to express those emotions in real time when they are there and you constantly suppress them at some point that's not going to work anymore and you turn to other coping strategies rather than the very the most normal coping strategy which is expressing your emotions thank you for knocking that out of the park because i teed it up for you and i we didn't rehearse this (laughs) and and you killed that because that's exactly what i was hoping you would say because psychologically if we if we repress what we're feeling and don't deal with it in the moment, uh, embrace it fully, and then move on to the next moment, we do get those um, blowouts. It's, it's a little bit like putting a, a cork in a, in a, in a uh, stop, uh, in a, um, what am I thinking of? Test tube. <laughs> if anybody's been in chemistry, you put, a, you put a cork in the test tube and you hold it over the, uh, the flame and it, it you know, pressurizes and blows out, right? So we're adding more heat to the, to the solution, which is you as a person, the heat being your experiences through life, it eventually uh, bubbles up, pressurizes, and then it blows out somewhere. Where's it going to blow out? Well, maybe on friends and family, maybe on your uh, boss, or maybe you're just really good at holding the cork in, and it blows out the bottom. And that would be internal self-destruction, like you know, um, depression, anxiety, substance abuse, that kind of stuff. So, uh, I appreciate you you driving that home for me. Um, that being the case, we in our field have taken on something from the nursing profession called compassion fatigue. And compassion fatigue is, um, I, I, I find it kind of a, a laughable phrase because it seems like a weird juxtaposition in and of itself where it's like you get tired of being compassionate. Compassion, if you strip it down to its Latin roots, uh, calm being with, pati meaning feel, you're, you're feeling with somebody. You're not supposed to feel for them. Uh, so if you're getting tired of feeling with someone, it in my profession, it's it's a little bit nonsensical because it means you've had loose boundaries to the point that you're now feeling everybody's everything all the time and you don't know where your, your boundaries uh, stop and somebody else's begin. In nursing, they don't necessarily get that training because they're from the medical profession. So it's it's pretty pretty useful to use a phrase like compassion fatigue in a medical profession in counseling, we're supposed to know what the emotions are and where the boundaries begin and end. In legal professions, it sounds like you guys could use some of that same training where you learn to leave work at work, not take on the client's burdens as your own, uh, not carry something for someone else and let them carry it themselves and, and simply stick to your job. Um, would it benefit your people to hear that kind of speak i mean hopefully this is why we're having you on the podcast right and you know maybe more attorneys listen to this and you know hear it but to me it sounds like it would make good sense to just 
train up the legal profession and say, hey, man, like we understand you can be super zealous about these people. Don't take it home with you. You know, this is this isn't your identity. Uh, this is just a, a thing that you do. And you can simultaneously be impassioned and non-attached. Is that reasonable? I think it's very reasonable. I also think it's probably the farthest thing from reality in the profession today. Um, what do we need? More evidence-based stuff? Like more research that says, you know, attorneys are killing themselves at a higher rate because they're not dealing with their stuff? I think we need a couple attorneys who are willing and to basically put their foot down and, and say, you know what? I got to the office today at 7.30 and it's now 6 o'clock at night and I would like to go have dinner with my family without being interrupted five or six times by various clients um, and shut the phone off. I mean, personally, I have one client, which happens to be in, you know a state agency. I have one client and I've probably been talking to you for half an hour and I am already anxious about what I have missed on my phone since I've started this podcast. And that is drilled into you during law school. Like responsiveness to client? Is that it? Yeah. He's supposed to be on call 24 hours a day? That is the perception and expectation of what a good attorney is. Good in air quotes, I'm guessing. Correct. So who's doing the judging between good and bad? pregnant pause (laughs) yeah i mean the clients that pay you so what if you just set up front like like i i run and operate a a mental health outpatient practice and we've openly stated at the outset we are not a hospital don't don't expect us to be a hospital we're not we're not accessible 24 hours a day and there are some in my profession who disagree with that and say that you must pass the pager and be on call 24 hours a day and and woe be it to you if you're not We've chosen to go the other direction and say, no, we're not. We're an outpatient facility, just like your dentist isn't on call. Uh, if you have a, a toothache, you go to the emergency room. There are, there are certain agencies that are funded either through uh, taxpayer benefit or through insurance plans that will treat you 24 hours a day. We're not it. Um, why not attorneys? Why, why don't they just say at the outset, hey, I'm accessible between these hours, and if you have a legal crisis at 9 o'clock at night, well, there is no such thing because nothing's open <laughs> at 9 o'clock at night. Um, why not just set the boundary? Good, good attorneys will do that. Attorneys who want to become famous or be known or, quite frankly, make a lot of money won't. Um, if you're working at you know a big law firm in a big city and you're charging $450 an hour for your work. And you know, if you take this phone call at nine o'clock at night and it's a 20 minute phone call, you can bill that client who has very deep pockets and doesn't care what their legal bill is another $200. And that leads to you making partner in five years um, and running the firm in 10. That sounds good on the front end, but that's not any way to live any sort of life that means anything and that's well, you, only- lo- you lose your spouse your kids don't know you um you, you lose sleep your hair goes gray prematurely develop a drinking habit yeah all that stuff right right and and that's you know that specific example is you know 
someone that you know is in private practice working at a private law firm who can take on whatever clients they want. But that has trickled down to solo practitioners and those who work for ver- you know the federal or the state government, those who work for nonprofits or legal aid services, where those those people are not making or not being able to charge four hundred and fifty dollars an hour. Um, but because they are an attorney and that is what people have perceived an attorney should be doing, um, they're almost forced into it. It's fascinating to me that you guys are, are operating on uh, these suppositions that just seemingly float in, in space when your profession is about uh, documentation, <laughs> like like contracts. And, and in the contract it says, I will be available during these hours. Um, and, and this is a good segue, I think, because you mentioned agencies and, and, and government work, and you're one of those government employees. Are you facing that kind of stress at your job where you're, you're compelled to answer the phone at 9 o'clock at night even though you're on salary? And you're not necessarily billing for that because you'd be billing, what, the, the, the people? Like, that, that's not how it works. You're on salary. Right, yeah. I don't, I don't bill by the hour like a lot of attorneys in private practice do. Um, and there are certain times during the year where things are going on at my specific state agency where I do have to be available 24 hours a day. That was set out quite clearly when I started working for that state it's a agency. Job description. That's a contract. Sure. It's a job description. Um, and it's not that way all year. No, it's not. Right. And it, well, it's not supposed to be. And no, I don't think that my boss would get mad at me if I didn't answer his or her phone call at 10 o'clock at night. But if I am up and I see that name come across my phone, my education in the legal field has trained me to answer it. Fascinating. So um, it's almost like your decision is made for you by your upbringing in the profession. Right. I would rather answer the phone than not know what my boss is thinking because I didn't answer it. There's an implication here that you are of right mind when that phone rings too, right? So you could be at a holiday party and uh, had a few adult beverages in your system, or you might be uh, waking up out of a deep sleep and not thinking coherently. And and then it, it invites an ethical dilemma, whether or not you're competent to, in that moment, to respond to whatever the inquiry is. Do people weigh this out or do they just answer the phone out of habit? I'd say a lot of attorneys answer the phone out of habit or hear the ping on their phone and immediately answer the email. Um, personally, I've gotten better at literally leaving the phone at home or in my car or somewhere where I can't even see it. What's the what if? Like, you know, what if you don't respond and then what, like, uh, the, the world blows up or, you know, ISIS was kicking in the door and you needed to be there to <laughs> do whatever you were doing? Um, luckily I work for state government, so I'm not fighting ISIS, but <laughs> things like that. There's been a couple instances where I've gotten back to my phone after maybe an entire weekend a day and I see something has gone horribly wrong. Um, and you know, I might, you know, say a couple choice words and think that I should have answered it. But in all likelihood, if I answered the phone, as soon as that problem started, I probably still couldn't fix it. Um, it was going to happen anyway. 
and even after not answering that phone, I still have my job. And we're moving into a segue about professional stress too, and you 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 bear a unique professional stress because you're in a position. You explain it better than I do, but you you work for the taxpayer dollars, but not really for the taxpayers. Uh, use share that analogy. Sure, you know I, you know I am a state employee, so you know my salary is paid for by the good taxpayers of Nevada, but I'm not the DMV clerk or the you know Medicaid technician. I am an attorney, so I have different ethical responsibilities. When I took my oath, you know, I agreed to zealously represent my client, and my client is not the people of Nevada. My client is a very specific state agency. Um, my client isn't even the political appointee that runs the state agency, um, and that that sort of balance is sometimes hard to achieve. Uh, it's familiar to me because. We, we struggle with the same thing in mental health where, or I guess healthcare broadly, where I'm treating the client and then there's the client payor. So to, uh, to whom am I beholden? Is it the, the client or is it the, the person paying for their services? And, and our ethics are very, you know, have been made very clear on that. It's, you're, you're beholden to the client, not the, not the person paying. Because sometimes we think insurance companies and insurance companies don't really care. But what if it's... Uh, you know, adult child and adult child's parent is paying for the sessions. Are you obligated to disclose information to them? Well, no, you're not. You need a release of information. So, I, I feel that that tension um, that you're expressing, and I can identify with it. How do you um, how do you deal with some of the political uh, baggage that comes along with that kind of thing? Because it's, I, I, and I'm I'm not asking this necessarily of you because I think that you're in a very unique um, sector of the. The, the public where you're you're under weird stresses politically but i think there's probably part of the listening audience is you know working for a company where there's major company goals then there's the manager who sets the goals and then there's the, like the shift manager and then there's like the shareholders above all those people um and somehow there's a mission statement woven into there and um how, how help these people understand who may be listening and struggling in the same way how do you manage the multiple stresses and how do you delineate where you pay your attention and to whom you listen um I like to say that sometimes an attorney's job is a lot of triage. Um, we, in my I in my job have you know, four hundred coworkers that come to me for, for legal advice, and I have to make sure that the answer that I'm giving them, is one, you know, in line with state statute and state regulation, and that the answer that I give them is not going to be used to do something that would harm the state agency, embarrass the appointee that runs the agency, you know, make the governor mad. Um, but I have to also make sure that I don't offend my own personal ethics. I've left jobs before because the ethics, my personal ethics have not been in line with the appointee's ethics or the agency's ethics um, or the elected official's ethics. Um, and I, I will do anything to protect my own personal ethics while upholding, you know, the oath that I took when I got my bar license. Um, and I think that 
the profession would benefit from more attorneys doing that. And I think that would also benefit, a, you know, the health of attorneys. Oh, I think humanity as a whole, too, could benefit from learning how to draw more accurate lines. And um, I, I'm sure there's people listening who are like, well, I, could, I can't just up and quit my job because my boss is asking me to do something unethical. And, and my pushback to that would be, yes, you can. You just have to plan it out. You don't do it overnight. You start job searching. You, you put a six weeks time limit on yourself, well, whatever it is. Um, and there's, an, there's a rub the entire time that says you have to tolerate what you don't enjoy while formulating your exit strategy. Because you do have to fund your mortgage and, and pay your bills and you know keep your family afloat and all that stuff. Uh, and ha- I'm looking for hope and inspiration because there's it sounds like a lot of doom and gloom, right? There's a, there's a lot of corporate pressure and political pressure and agency pressure and all that stuff. So where where does one find one's own satisfaction within that realm while still maintaining a balance? You know how do you how do you find your flow within the flow? I think that to answer that question, you need to look at how people are viewed in their daily life. You know, when you meet somebody for the first time, one of your first questions, if not the first question, is like, oh, what do you do for work? And Which is weird in America because we do that almost to identify somebody's uh, like character, right, or identity. Right. And, you know. Like, what do you do is tantamount to who you are. Exactly. And I think that that's the 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 seed to this problem of you know at least in the legal profession the the mental health issues that have sprung up over the past few decades is that i am not an attorney i am a person who works as an attorney i have gone through the the required education to get the degree that i need to sit for the state's bar exam and get my license i can practice law but that it doesn't define me. I have to, you have to be a person first before you are an attorney or a doctor or a carpenter um, or, you know, name your profession. I think that the, in order to, you know, ride that wave of stress that happens at any job and it's going to happen and then that's perfectly fine, is that you can't let it define you. You know, when I shut off the lights in my office and go home, I need to, you know, identify with what else I love to do, whether that's, you know, going out for a hike around Lake Tahoe or meeting up with a friend for a drink and not talking about work or going home to, you know, watch the basketball game. There has to be other things besides what you do to pay your bills and put food on the table that defines you. I did a uh, – Zephyr Wellness has a YouTube channel. If you're not familiar, it's got one guy on it. It's me, but we, Zephyr has a YouTube channel. I've heard it's great. <laughs> oh, it's fantastic. Um, but there was – I did a, a video on being versus doing, and it was more related to parenting than anything else, if, I, if memory serves. I think it's been two years since I did it. But the idea is that you can you can be certain things – and then you can do other things. And, and we want to be conscientious of where we be and do whatever it is that we're being and doing. So being a parent is is an identity. It's lifelong. You don't really ever get to shirk that duty. Um, and you can also do parenting. So uh, there's been this advent of like, uh, I'm, not, I'm not adulting anymore, right? <laughs> or I'm having to adult. 
it's like well being an adult is it, yes it's a it's an age thing and you know legally defined and all that stuff but then there's the the choice to uh, be mature carry responsibilities whatever comes with your definition of adult and then we've turned it we've turned it into a verb um but to take one's identity as that which one does hiker philanthropist business owner clinician attorney bus driver whatever it is if you hold it too closely what ends up happening is at the end of your career when you approach whatever you determine as retirement uh you th- you you flirt with the idea of not knowing quote unquote who you are anymore because you know if bob the accountant has only identified as accountant for his entire life and then he stops being an accountant he quote unquote doesn't know who he is anymore and then we have midlife crises and so forth so it's really important to know where the boundaries uh begin and end now for me what i'm telling my interns and my students is as a therapist and you as an attorney can identify because it's a profession very similar uh, therapy, uh, attorney, law enforcement officer, um, engineer, even to certain degrees, because it's very specific. If you're building bridges, when you're when you're off duty, people still want to know about your profession. And something that really drove this home in uh, recent history is I was listening to uh, Dan Patrick, the sports announcer, on his radio show, and he's he was sharing that he struggles when he uh, interacts with his. Uh, Hollywood celebrity friends who are actors in the film industry, he wants to talk to them about acting or, or musicians about music, and they all want to talk to him about sports. And it's this very awkward dance where he doesn't want to talk about sports because he's quote unquote off the clock. Um, they don't want to talk about their profession either, but but that's what they're fascinated about by the other person. So I tell my students, my interns, that you you don't get to be off duty ever because once you announce that you're in psychotherapy. People invariably want to pick your brain about whatever it is that you do, and they want to help themselves, and and that's okay. So if you're if you're tethered to the light switch, you know, as as you walk out the office and you flip the switch, and you're like, I'm done for the day, and then you you have this artificial expectation that people are going to know that you're off the clock, you're going to be disappointed, you're going to be very frustrated, um, and knowing that you can separate what you do from who you are in a in a professional capacity is very important so that you can be clinician even off duty while not acting as professional clinician. You're not keeping log notes. You're not keeping a case file. You're not doing an evaluation, but you can have therapeutic conversations. You can continue being human and you can, you can continue to, to give that, that feedback that you're professionally trained to do. I would imagine attorneys do the same thing where, you know, people are like, Oh, you're an attorney. Let me ask you this question about this obscure law that you probably don't even know about and is not in your bailiwick uh and you have to politely engage that because it's polite but also um you're put on the spot you don't get to say well i'm sorry i'm off the clock now off the clock has to take on a different definition based on what what our own uh perception is of it and what keeps us healthy so if you're if you're continually struggling with this, and, and the messaging is to the professional community, whether you're a widget maker, attorney, psychotherapist, is, hey, man, you like do what you do, own it, be proud of it, um, but then when you're done, um, be off the clock, but also know that people are going to pick your brain if you announce what you do. What do you do? Like, oh, they're, they're seeing you as this identity, even if you're not. You got to be okay with that, right? And you got to like kind of step into it. Yeah, and you know, there's you know, 
the joke in law school when you first start is that, you know, your, your first year professors will tell you, you know, put a limit on how much free legal advice you give your family because as soon as they, mm. the first mm-hmm. Christmas you go home after law, you, you'll still be a law student. The first Christmas you'll go home and you'll get bombarded by questions from, you know. You said on my will. <laughs> yeah. Aunt, Aunt Sally's asking you all these questions that you have no idea about, but you want to sound important and you want to sound like you know what you're talking about. And something that I have done in, in recent months is when I am not at work or not on the clock and someone asks me even a question that I do know or I probably should know um, and they want to engage in a legal conversation you know, at 9 o'clock at night, it's totally fine to say I don't know. And I know that that's like a scary phrase for attorneys and for a lot of professions. What makes you whoa, 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 weak? Correct. Um, I have become quite comfortable with saying I don't know. Um, and what that other person thinks of you when you say that shouldn't matter. Um, and I think that at least in the, the legal profession, it's – what the public perception is of us that matters the most to us, and it probably shouldn't. When you're in the realm of uh, public governance and you're operating that capacity, um, how do you maintain the same boundaries? Because you got you got multiple clients um, picking at your brain, you know, quote unquote clients. You know, they may be all uh, employees of the agency or whatever. But how do you how do you say I don't know to the people that? ostensibly look to you as the the guiding light well pregnant pause yeah in in my (laughs) um usually if i'm saying i don't know to a a co-worker of my agency it's because they've come to me with a problem that probably shouldn't have happened to begin with so i'm (laughs) so i'm going so i'm going to need a little time to research of how to get out of that problem um Say, saying I don't know to something like that is probably a good thing because it means it's never happened to you before. Hmm. Um, but there, there's, you know, they call it the practice of law for a reason because you'll never – an attorney You're always will, evolving. A, yeah. We'll never know anything. Well, I mean never know everything. Practice counseling, same thing. Right. Um, so th- I think that's that's a broader issue. It's okay to not know something. It's okay to not always have that answer. It's not being weak. It's just being – a normal human. Well, you and I know that, but but we're trying to convey this to an entire profession. We'll pretend that multiple attorneys are listening to this podcast because it's awesome. But if they're listening, um, and we just got done, you know, earlier saying how weak is unacceptable because weak equates bad, and bad is not something you want to be as a person. Um, and then we're here saying it's okay to say that you don't know, and it's okay to be weak. How how do we hammer that home to people? How do we make them comfortable being? what they're trained not to be other than modeling it, I guess, and right. just showing and that it's okay and we can survive. Sure. And, and and that's, you know, all that I can do at this point in my career. But by the time you become an attorney, that idea is so ingrained in you that it's very hard to switch. So I think that it, it has to start in law school. Um, I mean, you know, there's very famous movies about law school out there. You know, the paper chase, Legally Blonde, which is my favorite, um, <laughs> but they're all. But they, in, no matter if they're a comedy or a drama, they all have the same premise: is is that 
everyone is out to get the other person in law school and that you have to be first and you have to be better than the other person, if it's if you can change the narrative at the beginning, um, we will have a much healthier profession. Who's interested in doing that? Other than the, the, the very, very righteous who can dis- differentiate themselves from their ego. Who, who would practically be interested in doing that? I think that education administrators should be very interested in doing that. And if we're going to keep going down this path with a specific example, law school deans should be very interested in doing that because no law school dean wants at the end of their you know, 10-year career as that law school dean to say that, you know, I had seven students kill themselves during my time as law school dean because the law school has fostered this environment of cutthroatness. Is is that, I guess I'm, I'm trying to figure out how to phrase this, is, is the hyper-competitive nature actual reality or is it perceived reality as proposed by educators it seems like there's enough work to go around at least the way i look at it there's plenty of legal work to go around it's whether or not the attorneys want to represent those who really need legal help but i think that might be a conversation for a different podcast Mm, okay um but it is but that sounds like not as much money correct okay and you know I had a fantastic three years of law school. Um, I would go back to law school right now if I could and do it again. Um, but that's not everyone's experience. Um, I don't think that the um, cutthroat nature of law school is a perceived reality. I think it is actually what happens because it's what you are taught is going to happen when you get out into the quote-unquote real world. But that's what, that's what I was asking, not about law school, but about the real world. Like, is there, are, are, are attorneys really at each other's throats competing for clients? It doesn't seem that way to me. It's not. Um, you know, in certain... so why, why, why push that? Why push that narrative? Why not push a narrative of uh, um, harmony and deference and public service? Why, why push um, kill each other? Why push Lord of the Flies? It doesn't, that doesn't seem to resonate with even the market economy. Sure. It's, it's a much more exciting premise for a 22-year-old that's entering law school to say that, you know, as long as I work hard, I'm going to be better than all of these other people. But once you get out into the actual profession near practicing, I can't tell you how many times that I have called opposing counsel two years later because a question has come across my desk and I go, oh, I know who would have this answer for me. And I call someone that I have never worked with before. My only interaction with them has been fighting with them in the courtroom. And nine out of ten times, that person will give me that answer. They're super cool. Yes. Yeah. That's that's bizarre to me that that culture is created then in, in the educational realm if it's not applicable in real world. I, I get. I don't know. Maybe it's... I mean, academia being what it is, maybe there's professorial egos at stake or something like that. But yeah, and, it, and it's changing. I know. I know. I'm quite connected to my law school. Um, five years out, and go Billikens. Correct. Um, I know that it's changing um, because I've been involved in some law school initiatives, um, you know, mentorship programs of of current students, 
um, that I see that the, and it was like this when I was there, but it's even getting better that the premise of being a lawyer is to be a public servant, whether you're serving, whether you work in public practice or private practice, you are supposed to serve the public. That's cool. Um, because the law is hard. Um, the law is written in such a way, and there's tons of them that the general public doesn't understand, and it's your job to guide them through it. Um, that should be an attorney's, you know, first thing on his or her mind is that they're a public servant, not, you know, oh, I'm billing $450 an hour, or if I don't win this case, I'm not going to make partner. And then when you don't win that case, you know, you, you know, go to the bar and run up a tab and, you know, drink yourself into oblivion um, because you've, because you've been told that that's the most important thing. So it sounds like what needs to change is the narrative of, of the job. And the job is um, much broader in scope, which is to serve humans. And so whether or not you win the case or uh, bill a certain amount, you, you, what you get is satisfaction knowing that you contributed to humanity. So even if you lost, quote-unquote, you know, lost the case or whatever, lost the settlement... Um, didn't get the right outcome in the in the in this local government. Um, you can know that you zealously represented your client. Similarly, in my profession, I know that I I worked really hard with a client. I offered them lots of resources and perspective, uh, educated them, and if they still chose to uh, go down a dark path, I'm not wearing that. And that's what uh, my friend and mentor Christian Conti would call the error of omnipotence, thinking that I'm responsible for somebody else's outcome. If the profession, your profession learns to um, see it from a much bigger lens, they can be more at peace and struggle less, psychologically speaking. Yeah, and, and and this conversation does sound like a lot of doom and gloom, um, but I will, you know, the vast majority of attorneys and, uh, you know, take a defense attorney because I think it might be the, the most apt example. You know, this attorney has taken on, you know, a capital murder case and is defi- defending a client against, you know, a couple murder charges and they lose and the client goes to prison for the rest of his or her life. 99% of defense attorneys are going to wake up the next day and take their next Go client. Do it again. Yes. Yeah. Um, it's just that the the ones that don't and the ones that struggle, you know, are the ones that we hear about. Right. Um, but that doesn't mean that those people are less important or that we shouldn't try to help those Right, they're those also worth too. they're also worth saving. Correct. And and, um, and I think that's an important point to uh, you know to close on because we've we've eclipsed an hour now and um, I, I think that the uplifting message is that um, we all care about each other, right? And and we we want to recognize where we could make improvements, even if they're um, massively systemic improvements. Um, continuing to model or represent what's possible, so that the observing eyes can can maybe change their view and see that oh, well, you know, if Mike's doing it this way, maybe I can do it that way and be a little healthier or whatever. And um, that's that's the hope, and and I think we can take with us a hope that all of us uh, individually in our own capacities can impact our fellow man, fellow woman, uh, fellow professionals in in such a way that uh, elevates everybody. You know, there's competition's great because it drives innovation and it drives uh, customer service, but we don't want to be competing to the point that we're 
um, killing each other or ourselves out of sheer um, gain. You know, whatever we perceive that to be, we want to we want to compete to to elevate, not to destroy. Um, and and I th- I think that this is this conversation has been very illuminating for me, and I can take a lot of stuff back to my my interns and my students. Um, and I like to do takeaways at the end of conversations. I don't normally do them at the podcast, but um, I'm interested to know what you're taking away. That now that we've kind of you know run down this rabbit hole a little bit, and hopefully it's it's applicable to our listening audience. But what what are you taking away, or what do you think the audience should take away? What well, I, <clears throat> I think that what I'm taking away from this conversation is that it's already working because you know mm. I just you know we just spoke for an hour about mental health and legal profession. And I've been an attorney for five years, and you know, you count my three years of law school. I've been in the practice of law for eight, and this is the first time that I've talked about the profession's mental health or my mental health because of you know the preconceived notions of it. So I think that if one other attorney can hear this and do the same thing with somebody else, or you know, the attorney that hears this happens to be the managing partner of a firm and think that it's you know, worth the time and money to have a counselor on retainer, which a lot of big firms do now. Um, I think, you know, I think that, you know, change will come. I really appreciate that more than, you know, I was smiling. The listening audience can't see that because this is audio, not video. But um, I was really smiling at that. The fact that right here, this is evidence that it's working. You know, the, the fact that we're having this conversation, we're, we're podcasting it. And um, if you are one of those managing uh, partners of a large firm and you want to retain a counseling agency, Zephyr Wellness is uh, more than welcome to uh, into your organization <laughs> and, and will provide great, competent uh, supplement to your, your practice. Um, humble brag for us. But um, thank you very much for setting the time aside and coming in and, and sharing these things. I know it's, it's tough when you, you're, you're in a, a spot where um, you, have to, you have to hold a delicate balance between you know, disclosing too much and protecting what you do. And um, I just appreciate that you, you did it tactfully and diplomatically. And, and I think people will probably get a lot out of this. And hopefully the the, the, the people who are listening who aren't in the legal profession will also draw something from it as well, um, even if they're widget makers, um, because I think widget makers also struggle with occupational stress and, um, and being pulled in multiple directions and trying to figure out to whom they owe their allegiances. So thank you very much. Um, appreciate you. You're welcome. Happy to do it. Yeah, and happy Thanksgiving to everybody out there, even if you're listening many weeks later. And it may be February, um, but but it's November where we are. Um, On behalf of the Naga Notes team and the Zephyr Wellness family, we all wish you great mental wellness. Bye-bye.